So, 282 years ago, this very weekend, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the, in the Hands of an Angry God. I'm not going to preach that sermon today. Just thought you'd be happy about that. <clears throat> I do want to say, though, that um, I'm pleased and grateful and thankful for how uh, this congregation supported Caleb and his family during this time and that you continue to support him. I know some pretty special things happen and I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of the family and, and uh, on behalf of Grace Life. It, just, it, it was impressive. So thank you for that. And we, of course we want to keep them in prayer. <clears throat> okay. I'll be preaching today. Um, which is a good thing since I'm up here. Um, uh, Jesse will be preaching next week, and then after that, Caleb will return to the, I was going to say the pulpit, but it's really a music stand. So. <clears throat> um, I'd, like to ask you, <laughs> I'd like to ask you a question. Have you ever had to escape a fire? Have you ever had to... Um, take shelter from a tornado. Have you? Yeah. Have you ever uh, had to uh, hold on to something in an earthquake? Uh, I have. (laughs) Those and many other things can be pretty frightening. And I want to talk a little bit this morning about uh, some frightening things. The background of our passage today, we're going to be looking at... uh, Hebrews twelve eighteen through 29, the background of the passage comes from the Old Testament, and it comes from Mount Sinai. So let's begin by reading Exodus 19, 7 through 19. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people... And the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. So God had delivered the Jews from Israel. And he brought them here to Mount Sinai. And this was when God would give 
and established the first covenant by giving the law. It was also the time when the Jews became a nation, became the nation of Israel. And so they're here, they're at Mount Sinai, and God had spoken the Ten Commandments in the hearing of the people. And then if we jump over to Exodus 20, 18 through 20, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. So Exodus, as I said, Exodus chapter 20 is where the Ten Commandments are given. And it is followed in chapters 21 through 31 of Exodus by the giving of the law. Part of the Ten Commandments, I'm sure you'll remember, are the directives to not worship any other god and not to make an image of any living thing to worship it. Chapter 32 of Exodus records the incident where the people decided to make a golden calf to worship it. The scene at Mount Sinai was terrifying, and it was frightening. And the people said they were afraid of God, the voice of God, and but their fear intended to keep them from sin was not enough <clears throat> to keep them from breaking the first two commandments. 3,000 people died at the time for that sin. And every single person who was at Mount Sinai, except Joshua and Caleb, died before they entered the Promised Land. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you grateful and thankful and full of praise for you, for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And we praise you, Father, for drawing us to you so that we might come to Jesus and we might accept his offer of eternal life and we might accept his offer of forgiveness. May this be on the top of our mind as we go through your word today. And may you remind us how important that is. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the author in in, uh, chapter 12 here gives his, his final warning of the sermon. That is a letter. The author is inviting his readers to consider a stark contrast. The contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. To draw the contrast, he uses portions of the old, several portions of the Old Testament. We read a couple of them out of Exodus 19, out of Exodus 20. He, he uh, draws on Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 5 and a few other passages. And as far as Mount Sinai is concerned, the author wants to evoke a sense of fear. Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg, made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, even if, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Remember, the author's target audiences are those in his congregation that having come out of Judaism, have, are just being religious. Who are, as I like to say, playing around at church. Who are part of the fellowship, but not believers. Perhaps they're self-deceived, but more likely, they're seeking some connection. They're seeking some, some uh, a group to be a part of. 
Perhaps they heard that Christians help one another and they joined for that reason. But whatever reasons, they've now been exposed to persecution. And they don't like it. And they're looking for a way out. The author describe, describes Mount Sinai using seven terms. He first says that they have not come to, a better word is that they have not approached something that can be touched. In approaching Christ, his readers are not seeing or touching something physical. Mount Sinai was physical. It was in the, in the earthly realm. As we'll see, approaching Christ is approaching the spiritual realm. And while it's the spiritual realm, what we approach is really far more real than Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, the author says, was in a blazing fire. Very real, very hot. And if you got too close, you would get burned. He then says at the same time that there was darkness, likely from the smoke that, that came from the fire that made it dark except or despite that fire. I can relate to that a little bit because in California, as is happening now in Canada, there are wildfires. And uh, if you're close enough to a wildfire, you, what you can see oftentimes is this dark, thick cloud of smoke that's rising up. But, but within the cloud, you can see the flames. You can see the fire. You can see that orange, that orange glow. It can be pretty frightening. And then fourth, the author says that the whole thing was full of gloom. Very deep gloom that wasn't just physical, but emotional. Nancy and I, when we moved out here uh, from California, Southern California, the one thing that I noticed almost immediately about the environment was that there's a lot of cloudy days out here. Uh, In Southern California, it's sunny almost all the time. And so I decided I would look this up. There are an average of 103 days days a year of cloud cover in Los Angeles. And cloud cover there is defined as 80% of the sky being covered with clouds. In Rochester, it's almost double that. 200 days a year are covered with at least 80%. And just so you know, Rochester is the sixth gloomiest city in the nation. And it's funny, the day I was writing this, the day I was writing this very paragraph... I was sitting in my office, and uh, you know the sun was out. It was shiny. It was really beautiful. And then, as soon as I started writing this paragraph, here come the clouds. <laughs> I don't know what God was trying to tell me, but gloom is depressing. So, in addition to the frightening fire, and in addition to the darkness, you have not a fun day. And fifth, there was a tempest. The Hebrew word means a furious storm, like a cyclone. Now it's getting to be a very bad day. The kind of day that you'd want to go find shelter in your basement. Or the kind of day that you want to get in your car and drive the other way. Which I almost didn't do one day. Nancy and I were vacationing in Minnesota. We were driving along. We were in rural Minnesota. And just about anything around us for miles were cornfields. We did pass a little diner uh, on our way. And as we were driving, the sky in front of us started to get dark, cloudy, thick clouds, something I really hadn't seen before. And we're driving toward it, and Nancy looked at me, and she said, well, uh, do you think we should turn around? I said, no, we'll be fine. We drove along and turned on the radio and 
Lo and behold, there's a tornado warning. I've never been near a tornado. And Nancy asked a second time, do you think we should turn around? I said, listen, we're going to be fine. All we need to do is get through that bank of clouds and and things will be good. Why are you laughing? Well, Nancy's very nice to me. When I'm being an idiot, she never says you're being an idiot. She just gently persuades me that I'm being an idiot. We drove on some more, and it was getting worse, and the sky was, I mean, in front of us, it was just thick, dark clouds, and it, it was frightening. And then the sky began to turn green. Nancy says again with just a little bit of urgency in her voice, you think we should turn around? I said, yes, let's turn around. We ended up going back to that little diner, and they they took us in into their storm shelter. And while apparently the tornado didn't form, the storm outside was just just frightening, just terrible. When it was finally over, we got out all the cornfields. The stalks had been bent ninety degrees. It was it was quite frightening. And and Mount Sinai was frightening for the Jews. It's not the kind of place you'd want to hang around, but they had nowhere to go. And then six, there was the sound of a trumpet. It got louder and it got louder. I don't think the trumpet was playing when the saints come marching in. And then finally there was the voice. The translation says that it was a voice whose words. The Hebrew says, voice, words. That's what got their attention. The people heard and they understood the voice saying things like, you shall have no other gods before me. And it was not the voice of Charlton Heston, or John Houston, or Morgan Freeman, or for those of you who may remember, George Burns. No, it wasn't their voices. Psalm 29 talks about God's voice. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The people were scared for their lives and they asked Moses to make the voice stop. The author says that in coming to Christ, his readers have not come to this scene. Many of his readers, perhaps all of them, came out of that scene. They came out of Judaism. They came out of an endless cycle of sacrifices that just covered their sin. They may have been able to touch the wall of the temple in Jerusalem, for example. They may have been touched the hand of the priest. They may have been able to touch the sacrifice that they offered. But ultimately, under the old covenant, was fear about not knowing if what they did was enough. And if they thought about it, they would become acutely aware of their sin and fear of the God who is separate and unapproachable. And the whole scene was impersonal and and intimidating. Mount Sinai was meant to terrify, and it was terrifying. If the author's, author's readers were to reject Jesus, and this is the author's ultimate point, fear and terror is all they would have left, and they would have no salvation. Now, on to Mount Zion, Hebrews 12. 22 through 24. 
But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As with Mount Sinai, the author uses seven terms to describe Mount Zion. It begins with the idea of approaching. He begins here with the idea that we have approached not Mount Sinai, but we approached Mount Zion. And the first thing we notice is that Mount Zion is in the spiritual realm, spiritual realm, not touchable, not yet, but it's just as real. Second, we've approached Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so already it's far more personal than Mount Sinai because we have come to the city of the living God. We have come to him. We have come to his city. We have come to the city that he has built. It's not full of fire. It's not full of smoke. It's not full of gloom, but full of God's presence and with, a, with firm or permanent foundations. You might remember this is what Abraham was looking for. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. As he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Zion is a real place, with real dimensions, and it's permanent. Revelation calls it the heavenly city, or the new Jerusalem. And in Revelation 21, we find out that the city, the new, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is in the shape of a cube. And it's the shape of a cube that measures 1,400 miles high, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles long. What's more important is that God's there. The city of, this is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It is real and it is personal. Thirdly, the author says we've come to innumerable or tens of thousands of angels who are either in or at what it calls a festal gathering. We have come to a place where the angels have gathered and we, and we with them to a feast. Like an Old Testament feast. Or you might call it a celebration. We might call it a party. There was no party at Sinai. Fourthly, we have come to the assembly and the congregation of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The term firstborn, of course, refers to Christ. It's his congregation. It's his assembly. Being the firstborn refers to Christ's preeminence. is first over everything, whether it be first over creation or first to be resurrected to eternal life leading all who believe to resurrection and eternal life. The word congregation here is the Greek ekklesia, typically translated church in the New Testament. The sense of the word here is that it's a gathering, an official gathering. And as the author says, an official gathering of those who are enrolled. Enrolled in what? Well, they're enrolled in the book of life. The author has used this word before when he quotes David. In Psalm 22, in Hebrews 2.12, 2, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Psalm 22, 22, David is talking about a worship service. A service in the temple of Jerusalem. And this gives us a clue to the nature of the party. It's a festal gathering to worship God. 
Fifth, we've also come to God, the judge of all. The judgment's not a judgment of those who are at the gathering. That's been taken care of. Your sins have been judged on the cross. On the cross. It refers to God's role as judge of the wicked, of those who have not believed. This recalls a future worship of God for his judgment recorded in Revelation 19. 1 through 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. It's interesting right after that passage in Revelation 19. It's the passage about the marriage feast of the Lamb. Sixth, the author says, we have also come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This likely refers to those who believe, that is, those who have exercised faith in God before Jesus came, like Abraham. And like those the author mentioned in chapter 11 as examples of faith. In chapter 11, the author says, chapter 11, 39 and 40, And all these were commended for their faith, yet they did not receive what was promised. For God had provided something better for us, that they would be made perfect together with us. And finally, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Mediator not as an arbiter between two people who are trying to negotiate something, but as the one who applies the new covenant of his sacrifice to all who believe. Hebrews 9.15, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression, transgressions committed under the first covenant. The author says that Christ's blood was sprinkled. That's a reference to the sprinkling of blood by the Jewish priests with the sacrifice, sprinkling on the altar as they covered sin. But Christ's blood was sprinkled once for all to forgive and to remove sin permanently. Further, Christ's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where Abel's blood cried out for God for vindication, Christ's blood provides forgiveness. The contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is stark, and it couldn't be more different. Mount Sinai is fear, and it's terror, and it's impersonal, impersonal and unapproachable. Mount Zion is full acceptance into the kingdom of God where there is no fear for all sins have been judged and for those who believe all the sins have been forgiven. Mount Zion is not covered in fire and smoke and gloom. Rather, all who exercise faith in God and Jesus Christ come together to this festal gathering, to the celebration with the angels to worship God. Mount Zion is the love of God. It's very personal and it's fully approachable. Hebrews 4. 14 and 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. 
See, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, the, his voice shook the earth. But now, as he promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So this warning that the author now gives needs to be considered in the light of the example of Mount Sinai. The author says the people at Sinai refused God. They refused the one who spoke to them there at Sinai. And remember, everybody who was there except Joshua and Caleb died before entering the promised land. Or as the author phrased it earlier in his sermon, quoting God, as I swore in my anger, they will never enter my rest. Their pledge, the people's pledge in Mount Sinai, where they said all that the Lord has commanded us we will do, had no impact because it was not paired with faith. It was not paired with trust in God. The people at Mount Sinai were faithless, and they did not endure God's discipline and showed that they did not mean what they spoke. They are examples of those today, as well as in the author's time, that pretend to follow God but really do not. Those who, while they participate in the fellowship and in being with God's people, maybe they participate even in Sunday services or in grace groups, are not God's people because they do not believe. They will not endure God's discipline for long. And they are not part of God's family. They will not escape. They will die in the wilderness. And so the author gets to the point. If they refused, that is the people at Sinai, when they were warned by God, how, any, how can anyone escape if we refuse God speaking now from heaven? Both then and now, when God speaks, it's his call to follow him and to take up take him up on his author offer of salvation. We call it the gospel. Believe on Jesus Christ who died for your sin and who offers you eternal life. At Sinai, God shook the earth. And quoting from Haggai 2.6, the author shows that God will again shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well, to remove everything that is not unshakable. The removal of what the author calls created things or things that are made. What's left is the unshakable kingdom. Revelation says that the earth and heaven will pass away. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. What remains is God's unshakable kingdom. And so the author calls for three responses. The first one's implied, of course, that is, to accept Christ's offer of salvation. The second one, having believed, the author says that we need to respond in gratitude, in gratefulness and thankfulness for receiving this unshakable kingdom. If you believe in Christ, you've already received the unshakable kingdom. Everything else is temporary. God's kingdom is unshakable and it's permanent. And the third, we are to offer acceptable or well-pleasing worship. The Greek word for worship here is not limited to our modern and often narrow understanding of what worship is. Worship, for example, that we do on Sunday morning, or maybe while you're praying. The word means to serve. And it's often used to describe what priests do as they 
serve in the temple. Worshiping God is serving him. We are to worship God this way as we recognize that God is a consuming fire. Such reverence and awe is reflected in our serving and worship when we are, as David Peterson says, both confident in the saving grace of God and have a solemn respect for God as judge. By the way, reverence and awe do not preclude joy. So, what is acceptable worship? What is well-pleasing worship? Well, I'm going to give you a very brief biblical tutorial. Psalm 51, 15 through 17. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. John four twenty three and 24, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In Romans 12, 1 and 2. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Some translations say reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what the will of God is, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. So the author has made much, not only here, but really throughout Hebrews, about he's made much about God's word. He's made much about listening to God's word and acting on it. Today, if you hear his voice. So how do we apply this? Well, in Second Peter, first Second uh, Peter one three through nine, Peter speaks about God providing everything that we need for life and godliness, and then he provides a list of qualities that we are to make every every ever every effort to add to our faith. Things like virtue and knowledge and self control and godliness and love and some others. And then he says this, Second Peter one ten through eleven. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an abundance and an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What Peter says here is that the qualities that he listed are not what gets you into the unshakable kingdom. They are evidence that you have placed your faith in Christ and that you already are in the unshakable kingdom. So what Peter suggests is what I will suggest here. Check yourself. Have you placed your entire trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, not depending on anything you have done or could do to gain his favor? Put another way, are you relying on his grace? Then, Peter says, check and see if there's evidence in your, of, your, of your faith in your life because you exhibit those qualities and that they are growing and that you have placed your faith in Christ. Remembering that those qualities and others will grow over time as you live for Christ. Secondly, 
about God's Word, and I cannot do better than what Dr. George Guthrie says in this regard about God's Word. <clears throat> and you'll have many people in our day, just as they've done for centuries, say that the Scriptures, the Word of God, is no longer relevant. Because we found new information. We found new words that have replaced it. I just read an article about an Anglican bishop who says, uh, when we say, God is our Father, that that's problematic. I guess because he doesn't think God is our Father or something. Dr. Guthrie goes on, but the Bible is still relevant for us today, as relevant as it was for those who first received the Word of God. So you and I need to live in a relationship with God in which we have this vibrant openness, a posture of listening as we approach the Word, so that God can change our lives transform us, and put us into patterns of life that really will advance his cause in the world. So, hear the warning, listen to it, and live in light of the warning as we think about living in the light of eternity. That day is approaching, and we need to be ready for it, and we need to be involved with God in his work as that day comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the warnings in the book of Hebrews. And thank you, Lord that if we have believed in Christ, if we have put our faith in Christ, that we are not one of those who the, the writer of Hebrews was concerned about. He was concerned about those who haven't put their faith in Christ, but who play around at church, who say the right things, who do good things, who say, look at me, look at what I've done. Thank you, Lord, for saving us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the sacrifice that, Jesus, that you have made for us. And may we live, may we live, Lord, putting every effort of our lives into serving you, putting every effort in our lives to developing those qualities that Peter listed and, and others. That we may serve one another and that we may serve you as an acceptable way to worship. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.